Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The rapture of the church. Uh, some people, especially 10, 20, 30 years ago, if you got saved, this was something, a, a hot topic, an exciting topic. As time has progressed since the last great revival in the U.S., the, the idea of the rapture and the excitement of the rapture has slowly but surely dwindled. Some of Quite frankly, some of the best teachers today within Christianity either don't believe in a rapture or they believe that it happens way afterwards in the tribulation. Some of the best resources for Christians, they also they, they believe that we are going to one day usher in Jesus Christ. That we as Christians, we got to change everything, make everything better and better and better. And then when there's nothing left to be fixed except for sin, then Jesus will come. But the rapture, we believe it's biblical. We believe that the Bible has more than enough to say on it and more than enough to hold the position and the view that it happens before the rapture. Chuck Smith, quoting from this chapter, he says, The rapture refers to that time when Jesus is going to come without warning and take away his church from this earth. After the rapture, the Lord will pour out his wrath upon this sinful world. There are many pastors who claim in ignorance of the rapture or say that they are not certain whether it will precede the tribulation. They say they don't really know where they stand on this issue. I don't believe there's any excuse for not having a position on this issue. We have our Bibles and we're capable of studying this subject thoroughly. I believe that your view of the rapture will have a significant impact on the success of your ministry. Uh, listening to that podcast from Calvary Chapel Philadelphia on the Calvary Distinctives 2.0, they make a, a, an, an important statement that if we as believers have a stance on all the different doctrines out there, how can we all of a sudden say we have no stance on the doctrine of the rapture? There's more than enough in here in Scripture for us to study and make a decision and make a choice on what we believe Jesus has to say. Because Jesus has a lot to say on the rapture. And hopefully you and I, we want to think whatever Jesus thinks about the rapture. That's what I want to think too. I don't know about you guys. That's me at least, right? So if Jesus has a position on the doctrine of the rapture, we should study it and we should do our best to try to have the same view. If you want way more resources, listen to that podcast. It's about 20 minutes, and they have a ton of books out there if you want more resources. Before we read Revelation 3.10, I'll read for you Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul tells Titus, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus tells the church to be looking for him. Be looking for me. Await my return. Don't be looking for the Antichrist. Don't be looking for the arrival of the Antichrist. Don't be looking for the abomination of desolation. Don't be looking at Russia. Don't be looking at China. Don't be looking at all these other things. Be looking for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, 
Here Jesus, he's speaking to the church in Philadelphia. This is the faithful church, one of the very few faithful churches that we find within the book of Revelation. And notice what he tells them in verse 10 and verse 11. He says, Because you have kept my commands to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. I think it's very simple here. Jesus is telling the church of Philadelphia been a while since we went through Revelation. The church of Philadelphia was an actual church, historical church when this is written. Then it is a picture of church history. And now for each and every one of us as believers and me as a pastor, we need to be praying, Lord, where am I at and where is our church at? But here the church of Philadelphia tells them, because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. To test those who dwell on the earth. The command to persevere. Jesus is commanding us to have patience. To have steadfastness. To have endurance. Again, the perseverance and the patience here. It's not having the endurance to sit in a line. right? It's not having the endurance to sit in the 10 items or less line at Publix. And the three people in front of you have 15 items and you count it. Right? It's not talking about that kind of patience or the patience sitting in traffic. No, it's endurance. It's able to go forward under extreme weight or extreme difficulty. You can think of an endurance athlete. They don't have patience to just sit there and do nothing for long periods of time. They have the endurance to continue to stay faithful, to have a deliberate purpose, and to keep our loyalty to the faith in Jesus Christ. In Luke 8, verse 15, speaking about the parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus says, But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus commands us to have endurance. And the true believer will have fruit in their life, What's the fruit? What's the evidence of Jesus Christ in your heart? You should have fruit. And then not only fruit, but you're going to have endurance. You are going to possess a faith that endures through good times and through bad times, through difficult times and through the great and easy times. And the true believer, the true Christian, whenever Jesus returns and raptures the church, will not have to go through the great tribulation. That's why he tells them in verse 10, I also will keep you from the hour of the trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Jesus is telling them, hey, you're going to be kept from the great tribulation. This test is for those who dwell on the earth. It is not for the believer. Because if we're a believer, if we're a true lover of Jesus Christ and a disciple of Jesus Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship isn't of this earth. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. And the doctrine of the rapture, there's no way we could just handle in one service unless our service is three hours long, which it is not, nor are we going to do that. So we're going to do our best to go through it and leave a good basis, a general basis, up to if you want to study it more later on. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If we are a believer, we are called to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Just a couple pages to the right from Ephesians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. One last one in these epistles in Colossians chapter 3. Once again, a page or two to the right, depending how big your font or your Bible is, right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. It says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." Once again, once we get saved, once the word comes into our heart, that good soil, and now it breathes life into us and we're transformed, our old life is dead and gone. And now our citizenship is in heaven. Now we've been raised with Christ on high. Now we're not just dwelling on this earth. We are dwelling in heavenly places. And when Christ appears, then we're going to appear with him in glory. We belong to Jesus Christ and we will be with Jesus Christ. Back to Revelation chapter 3. Then in verse 11, he tells the church of Philadelphia, he tells them, Behold, I am coming quickly. And healthy Christians and healthy churches live with a constant preparedness and readiness, not for the apocalypse, not for America to crash, but a preparedness and readiness for the rapture of Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, we don't see preppers present, right? You don't see that happening. What we need to be preparing for is the return of Jesus Christ, preparing our hearts and our souls. Here in verse 11, when he says, I'm coming quickly, quickly is not necessarily speaking about something immediate, but something that happens suddenly and unexpected. It's not that it's going to happen right now, this moment, but when it happens, it's going to be suddenly and then unexpected. 
Jesus Christ will first return for his church, and then at the end of the great tribulation, he's going to come back with his church. Then he tells us to hold fast to what you have. Once again, the marks of faithfulness and endurance. We need to be continually faithful and endure following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a continually holding fast, constantly holding fast. We speak about this every once in a while with the young adults. If you have a good marriage, you're going to be faithful to your spouse how often? All the time, always, continually. If you say, hey, honey, I'm faithful to you about 95% of the time, I don't know if you would describe yourself as having a great marriage. We need to be continually faithful, holding fast, enduring within our marriages. And the same is true in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be faithful to endure. We only have that power by abiding in Jesus Christ. Jesus commands the Church of Philadelphia, and he commands us, don't depart from what has made you faithful and ready for the opportunities from God. That's earlier on in verse 7 and 8. We need to plug into Jesus Christ because we have little strength. We need to stay faithful to the word of God, those who have kept my word. And we need to have loyalty to the genuine Jesus Christ, those who have not denied his name. Then in verse 11, he warns them, be careful that no one will take your crown. A.R. Falsetti says this they would lose if they yielded to the temptation of exchanging consistency and suffering for compromise and ease. Are we exchanging consistency in our walk in relationship with Jesus Christ or the sufferings of being associated for, with Jesus for compromise and ease? This is not that someone's going to take away their salvation or steal their crown. It is that if they do not stay reliant upon Jesus Christ and his strength, if we don't stay faithful to God and to his word and stay loyal to the genuine Jesus Christ, we're going to give up that crown. This isn't a crown given by birth, but this is a crown given to the victor. Those who won the race, they're given that crown. It's the crown of reward to those who won the Olympiads in those days. In Colossians 2, verse 18, it tells us, Let no one cheat you of your reward. Then in verse 19, Colossians 2, it says, And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. We need to hold on to Jesus Christ. And if we're ready for the rapture, we're going to be plugged in and abiding to Jesus Christ. One commentator, Vance Havner, he says, Never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. That's why in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it tells us, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You are in no greater danger from anyone or anything than yourself. Again, we have to constantly be reminded, one of our greatest enemies is the double agent living inside of each and every one of us. Got to continue to crucify our flesh and stay plugged into Jesus Christ. Now we turn to Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. 
sorry, verse 1. We looked at Revelation 3.10. Now we look at Revelation 4, verse 1. Here John writes, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. If you remember the the simple three-point outline in Revelation, it's in Revelation 1, verse 19. And there Jesus tells John, write the things you have seen, past tense, write the things which are, present tense, and write the things will take place after this. After this is that Greek word metatauta. And in verse 1, the Greek here is literally metatauta and a metatauta sandwich. That's how the verse is. In Revelation 4.1, he says, After these things, metatauta, and then at the end, he says, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Metatauta, once again. Chapters 2 and 3 was all about the church age. Chapter 1 was about Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 are all about the church age. And then he says, Now, after this, he's caught up. He hears a voice like a trumpet, and the voice says, Come up here. Chapters 2 and 3, the Greek word ekklesia, appear 19 times in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, 19 times the ekklesia, the church. Then from Revelation 4 to Revelation 21, you don't see that word once. So you have the church age, then he's called up, right? All of a sudden he's snatched up. Then we see all of the insanity happening on earth, all of the different judgments, the bulls, the trumpets, the, man, I'm blanking out, the different scrolls, the seals, right? All being ripped open, all of the judgment of God. Then at the end, after the new heavens and the new earth, once again, you see the word ecclesia. So again, we believe that the rapture takes place and it happens before the great tribulation. Now, before we dive into verse 1 and 2 and look at this, some people may say, are you insane? Do you believe in aliens too, right? Well, what else do you believe in? That the whole, every Christian's going to get snatched up out of nowhere? And yeah, that, that's what we believe in. That's exactly what we believe in. And if you would have talked to the Jewish slaves in Egypt after 50 years, and they said, hey, we believe that in 350 years we're going to be freed from here, They probably looked at them like they were insane as well. And after the Old Testament with Malachi, if they would say, hey, all the prophets are foretelling that one day a man's going to come and save us and free us. The Son of God's going to come. They would have probably looked at you like you were insane as well. So, So again, it's nothing new. The just shall live by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And later on, we'll look at how healthy it is for us as Christians to believe in the rapture, and to believe that it's happening before the tribulation. Back to verse 2, he says, Immediately, instantly, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. This isn't the actual rapture, but it gives us a picture of the rapture. We see a door standing open in heaven. We see the voice which is Jesus, it's a voice like a trumpet, and the voice says, come up here. Then immediately, John is in the Spirit in heaven, 
And then the rest of Revelation, John is writing from heaven's perspective down to earth. The church has already been taught the doctrine of the rapture before John wrote the book of Revelation. Jesus himself is the first one that speaks of him coming back to take the church, to take the bride, to take the disciples back home. Let's turn to John 14, verse 1 through 4. John 14, verse 1, Jesus tells his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Again, Jesus starts off by telling the disciples to make the decision to not allow their hearts to be troubled. And later on, when we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, the doctrine of the rapture is not to scare Christians, we're not to be fearful or be anxious. It's to comfort us. And here Jesus is telling the same thing to his disciples. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also me. Then he tells them, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. During the rapture, Jesus won't step foot on this earth. He'll be in the heavens and in the clouds. We hear that trumpet. Then we go up to the heavens and we meet him. And then we all get out of here, right? Later on, after the great tribulation, then after the seven years, Jesus comes back with all of us. And then he steps foot on the Mount of Olives and it's split in two. So Jesus, he's preparing a place for you. He's building a designer home just for you, right? Chip and Joanna got nothing on it, right? You husbands, you could tell your wives, ah, we don't got to watch this anymore, right? Wait till you see what the extreme home makeover Jesus has got going on for us. The word mansion here, it, it's an unfortunate translation. It's really a room, a, how, a home, a room that Jesus is building for us. Wish we had tons of time to go through it in depth, but in Jewish culture, when you would marry a woman, when you would give her that engagement, you say, hey, I want to be engaged to you, you'd go back home to your father's house, and then you would build an efficiency attached to your own father's house. It's every Hispanic mom's dream, right? So now the son would go home, he would build a, a, an efficiency on the side of his father's house or on top of his father's house. Then later on, he would come without the engaged girl knowing. He would come, he'd blow a trumpet in the town, letting the people know that he's there. And then they would party for seven days, a seven-day wedding. And then he would take his bride to the father's house, not into the father's house, but to the room attached to it. And that's exactly what Jesus will do for us. He's building that place right now in heaven for each and every one of us. 
And then one day, if we're plugged into him, if we believe in the Father, if we believe in him, he's going to come and receive us to himself. That where he is, we may be also. You could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, so Jesus, he's teaching the doctrine of the rapture. Now we have Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. He says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That word mystery is a doctrine that only God can reveal to us. In the Old Testament, there was the mystery of the Gentiles being saved and of Jesus Christ living inside of us. That was a mystery. In the Old Testament, we don't really see that. Then it's revealed to us through the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. Now Paul, he's writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, hey, I'm telling you a mystery. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to have glorified bodies. And how is it going to happen for some? For some, they're going to die. They're going to perish. But for everyone else, in verse 52, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that trumpet's going to sound, then the dead will be raised incorruptible, and then we shall be changed. The dead, they're going to get their glorified bodies, and then all of us together will get that glorified body and dwell with Jesus Christ. We can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's with this church for just a few weeks, and yet so much of this book contains the doctrine of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now it's interesting because those that want to hold on to the rapture happening at the end of the tribulation will look at 1 Corinthians 15 and say, oh, the last trumpet, that's one of the last judgments, and then it happens. Those trumpets are blown by angels. But here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the one that is blowing the trumpet, it's the trumpet of God. 
It is Jesus or the voice of Jesus blowing this trumpet or a picture of his voice. And that's when we are called up to heaven with him. Then it tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Again, it will be a little bit strange if this happens at the end of the tribulation because we'd basically be making a big U-turn. We get called up into heaven and then Jesus is going to come right back down to step foot on the Mount of Olives and split it up and start things all brand new. This happens before the tribulation. Jesus, he summons a command. He calls us to him with a great shout, with this great voice, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ, they come first. And then all who are still alive and remain were caught up together with him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, it says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now this is very interesting because oftentimes they'll look at verse 3 and say the rapture is not going to happen until we know who the Antichrist is. Because we look at this And we see, unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed. It's very interesting because some of the first English translations in the Bible use the term to depart, unless the departure comes first. The implication is that the text perhaps is not referring to apostasy, but the removal of someone or something or many someones. Again, it may be another picture of the rapture. Some people say the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Guess what? The word Bible is not in the Bible either. The word discipleship is not in the Bible. The word trinity is not in the Bible either. We get the word rapture from the Greek word harpazo, which then is translated into the Latin, which is the Latin word rapturo. And I was not talking about dinosaurs. That's what my kids would think, right? But that word harpazo is to snatch or sneeze, or not sneeze, but seize. Seize or snatch. It's to catch someone up. It's to take something away by force. And it's to be caught up. That's where we get our word rapture. If you would be able to read your Bible in the Latin Vulgate translation, you would see the word rapturo there. Perhaps you're getting sleepy. I'll give you 10 quick reasons why scripturally we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. This is from John A. McLean. He says, number one, the promise of exemption from the tribulation that was given to the church of Philadelphia as we read in Revelation 3 verse 10. John's spiritual translation to heaven as a type 
of the rapture in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. We read that as well. That's point 1 and point 2. Point 3 is the presence of the 24 elders in heaven, which indicate that the church has been removed during the tribulation and their song. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, and the song that is sung in chapter 5, it's all of the saints singing to Jesus Christ and to God the Father in the throne room in, uh, in heaven. And this is all happening during the tribulation. There's a group of believers in heaven, the church. Verse 4, the, uh, not verse 4, point 4. The absence of any reference to the church in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 18. Point 5. If you want these points later on, just ask me. I'll send you the PDF of my notes. No worries. Uh, point 5. The marriage supper of the Lamb coming down with Christ at His second coming. It's referenced in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 through 9. Point six, the complete absence of any statement of rapture in the closing days of the tribulation. We don't see the rapture mentioned there in the book of Revelation during the tribulation. Point seven, the Jewish focus of Daniel's 70th week in light of distinctions made between the church and between Israel in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. Oftentimes what people believe is replacement theology where now God's covenant and promise to Israel is done and now that covenant and promise is given to the church. We don't believe that. We believe God keeps his covenants and his promises, one for the church and one for Israel. Point eight is the imminent coming of Christ for his church precludes prophetic views which hold that events such as the revealing of the Antichrist or the signing of the seven-year covenant take place before the rapture. That's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. If Jesus' return is eminent, if it could happen at any moment, then these things don't have to come first. We would be looking first and foremost for peace accords in Israel or for the Antichrist to be coming first. Point nine. The church everywhere is instructed to watch for Jesus Christ and never the Antichrist. We read that earlier in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Finally, point number 10. Believing sheep, which would have been caught up in a post-tribulation rapture, are found on earth at Jesus Christ's coming in Matthew 25, verse 31, when he separates the two groups of people. So those are 10 points. If you want those later on, I'll give them to you. So one point that was made there that is so important and so healthy for us is the eminence of Jesus Christ and his return. If Jesus is teaching that his second return could be at any time and will be a surprise, we should believe that, we should hold on to that, and we should see which doctrine of the rapture holds an eminent return of Jesus Christ. That word eminence is the quality or state of something about to happen. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24.
Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 and 37. Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. If no one knows the day or hour, the moment we see the Antichrist, you could set your clocks if you believe in a mid-trib or post-tribulation rapture. Then verse 42, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. All over the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples to watch and be ready. If we knew the hour, we would be ready just at that hour, just at that time. Verse 46, Jesus says, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, after Matthew 24, Jesus gives a few different parables. And the theme of all these parables, it's found in Matthew 25, verse 13. Jesus tells them, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. One more scripture, Luke 21. Verse 36, Jesus says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's what we should be doing. We should be watching. We should be ready for the return of Jesus Christ that it could happen at any moment. Hopefully you still remember when you were a kid and your parents told you, hey, we're going to be gone for three hours. We're going to get here at this exact time, but I want you to work on all these different things, and then I'm going to get back here in three hours. What would you be doing for the next two and a half hours? Anything but those tasks, right? You'd be messing around. You'd be making the house a messier. Then what happens when those 30 minutes kick in or however bad you are at procrastination, right? Ten minutes in, five minutes before. That's when you start breaking out. You start cleaning everything. Start fixing everything before they get there. If they get there early, they catch you in the act, right? That's where Jesus is saying, hey, be ready. You don't know when I'm coming. Our hearts, our lives should be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. We should be working and ready always for his return. Chuck Smith, he says, I firmly believe that the church will not go through the great tribulation. If Jesus tells us to watch and pray always that we may be accounted worthy to escape all these things, I'm going to be praying and watching always. And then in, in Revelation chapter 5, we read the song that we're singing in heaven in the throne room of God. 
And that's where we will be if we're watching, if we're praying. We're going to be standing in heaven, worshiping and singing together. Thou has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth. That's what the believers will be doing in heaven while the tribulation is taking place on earth. The Bible also teaches us that the rapture should give us comfort and hope. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13, to comfort one another with these words. We know that Jesus, he told his disciples, hey, don't be fearful of this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Titus chapter 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The rapture should give us hope. We should be ready. We should be encouraged about it. Charles Spurgeon, he says, The discipline of grace, according to the apostle, has these three results. Denying, living, and looking. Denying, living, and looking. We should be denying sin denying the flesh. We should be living for Jesus, serving Jesus, and we should be looking up because his return is imminent. We need this hope within us. We know that Jesus, he's saved us to a living hope. First Peter 1.3 tells us that he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible also teaches us that God's wrath is not for believers. Many times people will look to John 16, where Jesus tells us, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is tribulation with a small t. That's what this scripture is telling us. And this tribulation, it's not God's wrath. This tribulation is man's wrath. We will go through man's wrath. Believer or unbeliever, you're going to go through the sin of this world and man's wrath. However, if we are in Jesus Christ, if we are saved, Jesus' death on the cross took God's wrath on our behalf. So when we come to Jesus and live our life abiding in Him and obeying His commands, we are saying, God, my good is not good enough to handle your wrath. I'm coming to God not with my good. I'm coming to God through Jesus Christ and his perfectness, his perfect good, and so that God's wrath can be poured out on him and has been poured out on him on the cross. We can turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Now we're going to look at God's wrath. We looked at it in John 16, 33. That's man's wrath, but here's God's wrath. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We're saved from God's wrath from here on out. The moment that we're saved in his blood, we are saved. From the wrath of God. We could turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
Right after Paul is telling this church about the rapture, to comfort one another, to be ready, that it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. Then he tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Again, we are not appointed to wrath. We've been appointed to salvation through Jesus Christ. One last scripture about God's wrath. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. It tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now the moment that we're saved, God looks at our righteousness? No, he looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, it's perfect. So if God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, how can we think that the church, the bride of Christ, people who are possessing the godliness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, that God's going to somehow pour out his wrath on him? If we've been justified through faith by the blood of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath. If God has told us that we've not been appointed to wrath, but to salvation and to comfort one another with these words, we're not going to go through wrath. And if God's wrath goes against ungodliness and unrighteousness, how can we believe that the church is going to have to go through the wrath of God during the tribulation? Again, the great tribulation is tribulation with a capital T. That whole word is capitalized there. It's God's wrath upon this world the sinners within this world, the Jews within this world, and the nation of Israel having rejected Jesus Christ as their true Messiah. In Matthew 24, verse 21, Jesus says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor ever shall be. There's going to be tribulation upon this earth that we have never seen. The great tribulation is going to be worse than COVID, however bad COVID was. It's going to be worse than the Civil War, World War I, World War II, all the great earthquakes that have taken place. Think about the earthquake that just happened in Turkey. The great tribulation is going to be far worse than that. The Holocaust, the worldwide flood, it's going to be worse than that. And if a good leader clears out in a, the embassy before pouring out his wrath or declaring war on an enemy, how much more is our God going to call his people home before he pours out his wrath? Right? For you husbands, I hope you're a good husband and you move your wife out of the way before you have to pour your wrath out on a bad guy, right? You don't say, hey, honey, be the meat shield for me, right? And let me get this guy. No, you clear her out of the way. You put her out of the way, you put her behind you. How much more the perfect bridegroom and his bride, the church? Chuck Smith, he says, when you realize that the source of the tribulation is God, it automatically precludes God's people from being involved. It wouldn't be just 
or consistent for God to judge the righteous with the wicked. He's talking there about Abraham praying for Lot. He says, Lord, how are you going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah if there's even just 10 righteous people there? And the sad thing is there wasn't 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So did God pour out his wrath on them anyways? No, he sends the angels to snatch away Lot and his family. Finally, the Bible teaches us that in expectation and anticipation for the return of Jesus Christ cleanses us. What do you want to be doing when Jesus returns? Do you want to be in the middle of gossiping, in the middle of talking bad about someone else, in the middle of complaining about how hard you have it? Do you want to be in the middle of a sinful relationship, in the middle of pornography, of masturbation, of something like that? Is that what you want to be in the middle of when Jesus Christ returns? 1 John 3.3 tells us that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. If Jesus can come at any moment, that purifies us. And if that hope is in us, if that mindset is in us, we're going to be about our Father's business. Right? It takes out the excuses of not showing up to church. Maybe God's going to, the rapture's going to happen right now, right? It's going to happen later on. It's going to happen tonight. Hopefully it happens before the end of this Bible study. But this anticipation, it cleanses us. It's a purifying mindset. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, even Peter, he's talking about the rapture. He tells us, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Then in verse verse 14, it tells us, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. That we would be living our lives. Lord, if you come tonight, Lord, I'm going to be at peace I'm not going to be scared. I'm going to have comfort and hope. I'm not going to say, oh my goodness, the teacher's going to catch me. The test is tonight and I didn't study at all. No, we're going to be at peace because we're going to be without spot, without blameless. It's going to be Jesus Christ, but still we're working out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Chuck Smith, he says, I believe that God wanted every church age to believe that it was the last. Believing this has a threefold effect. First, it gives us an urgency for the work that we're doing to get the gospel out. Uh, Again, if you knew Miami was going to get wiped out in a month from now from a huge tsunami, would you buy a new house? Would you be super invested in the city and what was going on? Or would you be putting your investment somewhere else? If Jesus Christ is coming at any moment, that should stir urgency within us to not hold back in sharing the gospel. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, realizing the time and place that we're in, but it should give us an urgency for the work that we're doing for Jesus Christ. Secondly, it gives us correct perspective of the material things in our lives. If we're about to give up our whole life savings on a car only to realize we're going to get raptured next week and it's all going to burn, maybe we'll change our mindset on where we're putting our investments 
If all of our investments are in this world, they're going to be lost, they're going to burn, they're going to be eaten away. But in Matthew 6.20, Jesus tells us to lay up ourselves treasures in heaven. The third reason why Chuck Smith was convinced that Jesus wants every generation to believe it will be the last is that it maintains a purity in our lives. Again, he says, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. If Jesus would return tonight, what would he find you doing? What have you done for the kingdom this week? What have you done for the kingdom today? If he returns tonight, if he returns next week, what will he find you doing? Will it just be about living the American dream or the comfort or the ease? Or will we be about our father's business? So God, help us to maintain that blessed hope and bring it to all people in order that they might know the urgency of living for Jesus Christ fully and completely. That they might have the right priority concerning the things of the world which so easily grasp onto us and hold us back. That they might live lives of purity and that they will keep their hearts and lives pure in serving the Lord knowing that he might come at any moment. So Lord, we just thank you, Lord. We thank you that it's at any moment, Lord. We thank you that this hope, Lord, it purifies us. It keeps us holy. It keeps us pure, Lord. And God, if any of us don't know you tonight, Lord, that we would cry out to you right now, Lord. That any of us don't know you, Lord, that we would come up front and ask one of the pastors, I don't know him, but I want to know him. I'm not sure if I'd be raptured tonight. I'm not sure if I would die tonight, if I would really see him face to face. Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to live blameless, Lord. Help us to be about your business, God. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be those that when you come, you find no faith here on earth, Lord. Help us, Lord, to just persevere and to endure, Lord, to not get carried away with the cares of this world and the worries of this world and the weight of this world, Lord. Help us to set our mind on things above. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, let's all stand and we'll close in.